Hello, Merry Christmas or Merry Gravy Day, I should say, as it is December 21st, which is unofficially Gravy Day in Australia. And that's great timing because I have Paul Kelly on the podcast for my 77th episode. Gosh, I was so excited to do this one. Paul has a beautiful Christmas album out called Paul Kelly's Christmas Train, which is a lovely collection of folk, rock and roll, carols and hymns. And I highly recommend you have a listen over Christmas. It's a real treat with loads of guest singers. And it's a really special and very much a non-traditional or painful Christmas listen, like so many others have a tendency to be. Um, So Paul and I spoke remotely last week. We didn't have a lot of time um, and we did spend a lot of it talking about how some of the songs came together and how he collected and recorded these beautiful tunes, his band and his guest singers. So um, hopefully I'll get to have him back one day to talk a little bit more about songwriting and his amazing career. Um, But I was very German and professional and stuck to my allocated time. Ooh, and speaking of German, there's a bit in the podcast where we're searching for a German word for the concept of speak singing. I couldn't think of it on the spot, but the German word is Sprechgesang. And Sprechgesang, of course, is something that Paul does incredibly well. Speak singing. Paul's Strange Show story was illustrated by the incredible Jack Rogers. You can check out more of Jack's work on Instagram at Jack Rogers Artist. He has work for sale online at Gallery Ray, which is R-A-Y-E, and a big solo exhibition in March next year at Wollongabba Art Gallery in Brisbane. So keep your eyes peeled. He's amazing and I'm so grateful he made the time to do this. As always, you can see all the podcast artworks done by different artists each time on Instagram at Hearsay Podcast or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Please like and subscribe and leave me a review on iTunes if you want to. I would love it. Here is episode number 77 with Paul Kelly. So nice to see you. You too, Sarah. How are you going? I'm going really well. How are you? How are you feeling about the album? Oh, pretty good. Actually, it's really, really uh, good just to have it out because it was, it was quite a long labour, a labour of love. You know, it's been brewing for a few years and then the actual recording, um, there was a, a lot, lots of interesting journeys in the, in the making of it as well. Uh, and just, and of course, all that, as you know, all that, kind of work you have to do before putting out a record the artwork oh, took yeah. even the artwork took ages on this one really um is it's all stuff people don't really know when they haven't released their own record isn't it yeah a lot, a lot of stuff that takes up time and i'm yeah. i proofread everything and try and oh, yeah. avoid all the typos and that yeah <laughs> <laughs> i um i was wondering do you have the I'm a genius, I'm a piece of shit when you release the record like the rest of us or have you released so many that you're beyond uh, those no, types of feelings? <laughs> that's that's exactly exactly how it is. Um, sometimes if you get re- you're sort of high on what you've done or what you're doing and you think, this is great, this is great, and then uh, next day you think, oh, you know, what was I thinking? <laughs> uh, but even 
I mean, I, I am proud of this record, so I, I sort of, I'm okay, um, you know, I, I can, at this stage, I mean, maybe in a year's time, I think, what, what was I thinking? Because it's often, <laughs> you know, your views of things change as, as time goes by, but even when, even when you've um, done, you know, made, made what you think is a, a really good piece of work or had a great tour, that actually, when you finish it, you, you go flat, there's a real period of, period of flatness. So yeah, definitely, definitely go through that. Where are you in it now, though? Are you in the acceptance and hope stage? I'm in the uh, because I'm talking about it quite a bit these last couple of weeks. I'm starting to feel like, and this always happens. I'm starting to feel like a fake. You know oh, when no. you, you know that feeling. <laughs> yes, I know it well. <laughs> yeah, when you you just because the the real work is is in the making and the making of it, the singing and the playing and the thinking about it. And the talking about it is, is what, uh, after a while, you, it, it starts to get unreal and, uh, and you think, I'm not, a, I'm not a real talker. I'm not a good talker. I'm not a person who should be talking about this. I should, you know, I just need to make it and put it out. But yeah. um, after a while, talking about it, um, yeah, just you start to, you sort of get a bit outside of yourself. You, you know what I mean, don't you? Don't you Absolutely. Know yeah, I get, I get that too. But I think that unfortunately, it's the only way to get it out there. You have to tell people about it. It's a different experience than listening to it because you actually get to hear the backstory of, of where the songs came from. And that's a whole nother part of the journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so lovely. And I really can't wait to talk to you about some of the backstories because I feel like this record, which, by the way, I've, I've really been loving. It's such a special collection of songs. And obviously the, the theme of family is so big in it, um, cultural and religious representation, and the harmonies are just spine tingling. When I think about you, and I've known you a long time now, I actually do kind of think that backstage and your band and your crew and ev- everyone who's who's around you, I feel like you really invite them into your family. And I've certainly felt like part of your family on several occasions. Um, do you feel like that is a, a really important theme for you? Do you agree with that? sort of notion of inviting people in and and this record in particular inviting people into your family yeah that's that's a really nice way of putting it I probably wasn't that you know that conscious of it but um yeah I come from a big family and a big clan and uh we sort of we like each other and we like hanging out together and as you say the band and our crew when we're touring we, we are we are like a family um so that's that's just the best way to go about things to be work with people that you that you love and you know that the band has been we've been together a, a long time going way back you know with Peter Luscombe from the early 90s um, and Bill from the early 2000s and you know Dan forever <laughs> my nephew yeah. uh, Ash and Cam Ash, Ash Naylor and Cam Bruce are the newbies and we've been playing together since 2007 so Vicar and Linda for thirty years on and off, so that's it's like that the the relationships have the length of time is the, the kind of time that the family relationships are. You know that they're they're long. You can't you can't they're forever. You, you can't sort of yeah. you, you can't leave the family. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Even if you don't like them for a day, you know that you'll love them again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love the strong through line in this of family and playing with people that are actually your family. You know, your daughters sing on the record. Dan obviously plays on the record. Your sister arranged um, harmonies. I just think it's it's so beautiful and I love talking to people about what that means to them to have their their blood on the record, you know? Well, I didn't even realise it till just recently when someone pointed out to me that on um, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, there's we have three generations of Kellys on it. I'm playing guitar on it, Dan's playing and singing the backing vocals and my daughter's Maddie in Memphis a part of the backing vocal crew. There was lots of backing vocalists on that. And then when we were putting the last bit of the bit of a recording on the song, the last overdub, Cameron Bruce was putting the bells on in, on, on a keyboard. And uh, Declan, my son, came in, wandered into the studio. They, they live around the corner from Sound Park in North Fitzroy. They just dropped in towards the end, end of the day just to come and say hello. Declan, my Declan, Declan's son Juniper, and we, you know, Cameron was about to put the bells on, and he just turned to he turned to Juniper and said, "Do you want to play the bells?" <laughs> so cute. <laughs> and Juniper said, mm, "Okay." And the, you know, he's, <laughs> he's he's had he's had piano lessons, so he, he knew how to play them. Cam just showed him the notes, and he, he played the oh, bells. So that's so lovely. That, that's the start of the song, and all the way through, you can hear. Juniper Kelly on bells. Oh, how old is Juniper? He's twelve. He turns thirteen on Sunday. On well, amazing fifth December the fifth. Yeah. It's very good. It's very in time that bell part. Yeah, yeah, plays in time. You did a That's, great job. Yeah. <laughs> I love that um, when I was listening to the album. My the first thing you hear is this drum beat that kind of sounds like a heartbeat. But that was Pete's idea to to, to start with. The drum as a heartbeat, and as soon as he started doing it, we loved it, you know. And oh yeah, that saved when we recorded that we didn't know it'd be the first song on the record. But mm. yeah, I, I liked the heartbeat, and I thought that's a great way to start start a record. It really is, and I love like in your um the the stuff that came out with your press release. You said that that you had like last minute move around of the <laughs> song um, order. <laughs> I love that too because people don't often think about how much time artists put into ordering songs on a record. And, you know, and this, this album has 22 songs or something, so it must have been a big labour to really think about what goes into what and what to start with. And Yeah, and that's, that's actually part of, the re- part of the making the record I really like is playing around with the sequence. And um, I usually sort of invite uh, others' opinions as well, so it gets some... Gets, um, uh, thrashed, thrashed out amongst a band, but um, uh, yeah, in the end, it's up to me to, to do the sequence. And it was it. All records are tough to sequence, but you know, fun to do. But uh, this one in particular, because it's so um, diverse uh, and you know, sort of ancient, ancient choral hymns with with out and out rock and roll songs, and uh, you know, a reading and carols and pop songs and folk songs. So. The sequencing was uh, t- took a lot of time. The hardest song to fit anywhere for me was "Christmas Train," the title track, the one by oh yeah Vicar, because she just she just sort of it, you know she just tears it up. I mean, when she, <laughs> she came does. into the came into the studio <laughs> and said, "Right, 
And then, you know, when, when Vicky comes into the studio and starts singing, the band has to be ready. So we, you know, she just, she was in there first or second take, done. Wow. Linda came. Linda came in and did her song on the same day. Same thing. Linda's been singing that song live for quite a while. But Christmas baby, please come home. So, and the band knew it pretty well. So we just they came in and smashed it. We had two songs done in four hours. And, wow! And they, out they walked. Pros. Yeah. As always. As those always. Women. Yeah. <laughs> I've always wanted to see Vicar sing in like a dirty garage or punk band. <laughs> this is probably the closest we'll get to that. So thank you for facilitating that dream of mine. <laughs> no, that's been a dream of, well, Pete, Pete Luscombe and I, Pete and I have talked about that a lot, you know, in relation to the Bell Rays, which are like, they're yeah. like garage soul. And we've often said, you know, Vicar should make a solo record in that style. Yeah. And, and um, you know that's a song. That's a Bell Ray song, "Christmas Train." So, we we've managed to get get her to do one one like that. Yeah, she could, yeah. She could do a whole record. It'd be great. She would be amazing. Mm. She'd be so amazing. I think she'd she'd be such a good like front woman for a punk or garage band. Yeah. The most powerful singer I think I've ever heard. Yeah. But the vocal on that song, you know, we normally have a little touch of reverb around around someone's vocal. We had that in the first mix and. Then, I was mixing it with Steve Schramm. I said, let's just take the, just let's keep it totally dry, keep that vocal totally dry, and uh, that, which is what it is, and it just, just sounds great. I've seen you play so many times with and without them, and there's something so magical when, when they are on stage with you, and I think all of your voices blend so well together as well. They're just, um, they're just a force. They're a force, uh, yeah. They always, yeah, it just gives us a lift. Um, yeah, we miss them when we don't play with them. We can't always get them, but but we, yeah. so we, we miss it. Um, <laughs> but when they're when they're with us, it's just a lift in all ways. You know, just just as people um, musically, um, they they can take step up and sing a song, take the lead in the song, and then the harmonies are beautiful. And also, just mo- the way they move on stage, um, I love it because you know you see your see the audience and just mesmerised look, looking at looking at them. Absolutely. Uh, which is great. It takes the yeah. pressure off. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I watch them a lot. I mean, I think you definitely have one of the absolute best bands in Australia. And I'm not just saying that because they're all my buddies, but I I think that each and every one of your band members are just absolutely incredible at their instruments. They're incredible at like playing together. They're incredible at supporting your songs. Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah, very lucky. Um, they're always and uh, they're f- they're just fun to be around. I mean, I've, I always talk about I like to have people low maintenance people around me, uh, um, <laughs> people that don't, you know, people that don't stress when you turn up and the sound checks uh, running late or or the or the the monitors sound shit on stage or you're playing a festival and you have to walk on stage and everything sounds horrible. You just you yeah. just go ahead and play yeah. um you know you get flights delayed you know flights cancelled car all that stuff stuff that goes wrong on tours all the time and that everyone's cool everyone's cool we there's always we're always you know pete tells he's i must have heard some of pete's stories you know over a dozen times but i still <laughs> laugh every time yeah. <laughs> It seems every time we're together, there's, we're just usually laughing or someone's yeah. telling a story, you know. So I often, great. you know, I, I'm always, I always have a book on tour 
which you know, because I always like to read, and there's a lot of waiting around. But you know, so but half the time I bring my books, I'm going to read, and then you know, the band comes in, and everyone people start chatting, and then there's it's just just shooting the breeze, you know. I never get to read the book because it's just like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you've got time to read at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'd really like to also talk about the. I mean, there's so many beautiful voices on this record, but one in particular that I always get floored by is Marlon Williams, and mm. um, this one is was recorded remotely. I feel like that's getting more and more the new normal these days is, you know, not being able to be in the same place as your collaborators. Can you talk me through how that went? Um, uh, that was that was a real round, roundabout uh, recording in all ways. Um, we, well, for, first of all, I, I, I thought, I, I loved that song, Oh Holy Night, and I thought, oh, Marlon, Marlon Williams would be great for this. I rang him up. I said, you know, I'm doing a Christmas record what do you think about maybe singing Oh Holy Night on it? And he said, it's my favourite song. He didn't say, it's my favourite Christmas song. He said, it's my favourite song. He said, said, I've been singing it since I was a kid. I've sung it in choirs. I've sung it in different languages. And then he suggested, what if I sing it in Maori? And I said, yeah, great. And then he said, it'd be good with the children's choir too. And I said, yeah. And then (laughs) at this day, we were still hoping that he would be able to come over and record with us. You know, because the, the way that we did the records, just live in the studio and all the singers come in. Um, so he sent a little phone demo and it's, it's just, just about my, one of my favourite recordings. A really r- sort of rough, raw phone demo with some knocks and things on it. And he's playing guitar, he's singing it, and then he goes, then he leaves the bit for the choir and then he sings in falsetto. Does this falsetto bit where this is my idea for the his idea for the choir, and then he somehow worked out how to double track on his phone, and um, then he sing, goes back to singing the, the second verse with him doing the, this full falsetto choir, <laughs> sends it back to me, and uh, I said that's great, that's that's how we do it. So we um, we're still hoping at this stage that Marlon can come to, to Melbourne. So we just practice it. And, play it in the studio we follow his demo like to a t and it you know of course when you hear it how it speeds up and slows down as it has to with that with that song so we sort of studied it this this crackly phone phone recording and then um copied it as best we could playing sort of really softly and i copied his guitar part and then we sent it back to him you know just to see what what you know what he thought of it and in the end, he ended up having to do it. He liked it. He, uh, we didn't have the choir at that stage. He really liked it and, and uh, ended up recording it in Auckland. And uh, I was on the Zoom and uh, we set up this, the, that special thing that engineers can do. Where they yeah, send, I send, love that thing. <laughs> I love that thing, yeah. Where you, whatever it's called, where you can yeah. hear exactly what the studio's Hearing. Yeah, without yeah. that little little latency you get on Zoom. So, but we could talk to each other on Zoom. So he sang it, beautiful. I'm sitting in the studio in in Melbourne, just sort of, you know, got the, got my you know the hairs going up on the back of my neck. Um, and then we uh, talked to talked to Jess Hitchcock, who's involved with um, Short Black Opera and the Dungala Children's Choir. And uh, she organised 
the choir, or part of the choir, six young women, three of them from Shepparton and three from Geelong. And they came to a studio around the, around the corner from my house in St Kilda and sang, sang the choir part with Alice Keith and Jess taking turns conducting. And then Alice sort of ordered Jess into said, Go on, Jess, you jump in the choir. <laughs> Were you there yeah. then as well? I was there, but yeah. you know, like with a lot of things on this record, I was just I was just there. And then yeah. other people just I was just there sort of keeping the engineer company while other people <laughs> other people went to work. <laughs> so and then we turned it back to Marlon and he loved the choir. So we oh. had a we had a song. So yeah. It's so beautiful. The choir really makes it too. One of the things I really love about this record is because my my family is from Germany and I lived there for the first seven years of my life. Mm. So I was very accustomed to Euro Christmas, especially German Christmas, which is really big with the German Christmas markets and the you know, yeah. Um, and I love that this record really represents both hemispheres and especially because my mum and I were just speaking recently about how we really miss that German Christmas and how Australian Christmas doesn't feel like our Christmas Um, and some of these songs do make me feel like Australian Christmas could be my Christmas in the hot sun of Christmas day yeah uh, even though that's um it's a really sad song I, I sort of resonate with that feeling of the steaminess and, you know. Yeah. Catana Veloso, great, you know, one of my favourite songwriters, Brazilian songwriter and singer. Um, yeah, that's his song. That was it, yeah. I was re- I was keen to do it, but it was, you know, it's a tough one where you had to re- sort of work, work on that. Um, again, you know, the key to it was when Pete, Pete found that, that groove and then it sort of everything sort of slipped in. That groove is amazing. Yeah. You really latch onto it quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, mean, well, I say Pete, but it's sort of it's, it's, it's a combination of what everyone's doing. But when, yeah, Pete started playing that way and everyone sort of found the, that little pocket, it was, that, that sort of became easy after that. I know you're a, you're a big fan of um, dissecting lyrics and chord structures and stuff. This one I loved for the fact that it was a really sad song over quite a happy tune like a happy vibe are you a fan of songs like that where you're just not quite sure how to feel when you listen to them oh very much so that's i mean hank williams for me in a way is a a touchstone i always go back to hank and he had that that's what he had really most of his songs are very sad really sad lonesome lyrics Mm. but um the songs they've always got a They've always got a pep in the step. Um, I mean, I'm so lonesome I could cry, which is, I think, the saddest song ever written. Yeah. Um, and every, you know, lots of people have covered it. Every version of that song I've heard by other people is slower than Hank's. You listen to really? Hank's ver- listen to Hank's version, and it's there's a real pep in the step of the band. So, um, and it's the same with a lot, a lot of his songs. And the melodies are sort of sort of kind of up and they're, they're kind of cheerful. Yeah. Um, you know, because often, often he was playing in sort of little juke joints and dance halls and stuff like that. So, they, you know, they had to be keeping people entertained. But, um, yeah, that, that, that beautiful um, juxtaposition of sad lyrics and upbeat music, or the other way around, uh, is yeah. really good. Yeah. 
I love it too. I was trying to think of one of my favorites when I was listening to this song and I think Girls Just Want to Have Fun is one of my favorites because that's really quite sad lyrics and you would never know unless you really listen closely. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so many people dance to that song and have a great time and <laughs> it's such a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many songs I could talk about from this record and I won't go through them all, but one that I wanted to specifically focus on, which really gave me goosebumps, was the Coventry Carol. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that song? Because that one really, holy moly, has really moly. got under my skin. Um, I wasn't really aware of that song until a couple of years ago. I was talking talking to Alice Keith, because um, I've been thinking about this Christmas record for a while and uh, we were just talking about some carols, and she said she sent me a, a few different versions of Coventry Carol, and um, I thought it was beautiful. That that'd be maybe really good to do. And then um, what what happened was last uh, New Year's we did a show on TV for ABC, and it was Kate. Kate was at the show. Kate sang with us. Jess Hitchcock, Alice, and a few others, and we went back to my place afterwards and carried on. It was New Year's Eve and um, we carried on and carried on and um, uh, started singing songs and stuff. And then sort of way, sort of quite late in the night when the other people had gone, it was just Kate, Jess, Alice and me, Sean and a friend left. And um, Alice started singing Country Carol, yeah, and Jen, Jess and Kate started joining in. And, uh, and it was just, I mean, it sounded beautiful. I mean... Um, so that was that. That was the seed for that. The interesting thing about that, you know, all those singers, the three of them, is that they are they're all they they've they've sung in choirs growing up. They've they've classically trained, but they all they all sort of work in pop music or folk music. Mm. Um, so they could bridge it. So you know, we did it. We did the the basic structure of the song and the harmonies is all from the classical arrangements. We, we used an arrangement by Alex Palmer, who's a classical arranger. And, but they, they made the bridge between the classical world and the world of the record or, or, or yeah. my world. And just, because you hear, the, you hear the, uh, the classical recordings of Country Carol and it's quite, yeah, it's usually a choir, it's usually in a big space, it's quite formal, it's, in some ways it's sort of impersonal because they aim for that purity of tone. But they... Those three singers made it uh, more intimate, and you can hear them. You can hear them breathing on it, which is sort of that's that's more what you know what happens in in pop land. You hear the hear the singers breathing. So, and I think Alice has a lot to do with. She's she's like the secret secret sprite throughout the record that ties everything together because she could she could bring Coventry Carol and you know Bridget. She can sing a Latin hymn from the 14th century, in, internet hottier, and make it sound like a folk song. What a beautiful voice she has too. Yeah. And in that song, there's a real otherworldliness through part of it and then there's a real personal feeling through other parts of it. I felt like some of it, their voices sounded like sine waves. They were so pure and so clear. And then you hear the breathing and you get taken out of that sort of, yeah, it's so beautiful. I really, really love that arrangement. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that was because it was a delicate dance. That one of how to do it, and of course, the women had no problems. But then, you know, the blokes, Simon, me, <laughs> Simon, Always me, the blokes, <laughs> the bloody blokes. But you know, there's a whole male verse of the 
male verse. Well, of course, we had Marlon on, as a top male. That was fine. He, yeah. he, he, he's, he had all his classical chops. Um, and we tried, we tried some, uh, you know, Simon and I had to do a lot of work to get our bass parts right. And then we still wasn't quite knitting together. And then Alice ran into Teddy Tahu Rhodes in, in the ABC. She works there. And she said, and she didn't even know him. But, you know, she's and he, just, he's the opera baritone. Opera baritone, yeah. yeah. Big star. And, uh, Super pro. She didn't even know him, but she just said, oh, there's Teddy Tahu Rhodes. She's like, oh, here we go. So she, Here's an opportunity. <laughs> she, she pounced him and said, Can you, would you be interested in singing on this record? And he, he said, yeah, I'd love to, you know. So it was <laughs> such a good sport. And so he put the real, like a, another bass oh, with, yeah. with Simon, me and Lower, and it really just gives it, grounds it with that sort of menace that it needed. Yeah. I don't even know how anyone can make that noise with their mouth, with their throat. It's incredible. It's so low. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that was quite a coup for us getting Teddy, yeah. Teddy in the record. So lucky. That's mm. really like, I don't, I don't really believe in fate, but sometimes things like that happen where you do kind of wonder. Yeah, well, that's it. A lot of those sort of happy accidents happen on this record, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I really want to ask you a little bit more about um, general songwriting stuff because it's funny, like I've, I've spent so much time with you, but I never talk to you about songwriting. We always just talk about how we're going in our families and whatever else is happening in our lives, mm. but I never go, so when do you write a song? <laughs> you know, when, when, when so, yeah, you're right. When songwriters get together, we don't usually talk about songwriting. It's no. the last thing we want to talk about. It's like, you I know. know. <laughs> well, I, I really would love to know you talk a bit in your book about having a good steal and I love that notion because sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it but it's such an important thing for songwriters um do you ever how do you feel about when you steal something do you feel smug or do you feel guilty or do you feel like it's just part of the process uh there's there's a few there's Maybe it's kind of a few different shades of stealing. I mean, it's part of, in a way, you know, if you're influenced by things, it's, you know, it's a, you're always going to pick up things from other songs and other songwriters. Um, I sort of came up in folk music where it was, it was, that was, you know, words, you would use words from other songs where words moved around between songs melodies, uh, words, words could change. Um, so it was the idea of, um, you know, this belongs to me was much more fluid. So it's more like folk music has a common well that you would, you would draw on and blues or, you know, uh, and soul. A lot of music has that. It was sort of, it's actually a very sort of recent idea in, in sort of in, in music history that, you know, oh, this is, uh, you know, self-expression. This has to be just me, you know. I think that sort of mm. c came up more in, in the 60s that, um, you know, that, that the, the music you made was yourself, your self-expression, yeah. and it was really ownership. ownership, originality and all that. But I, I've never really bothered with, with that so much. So, and I've often, yes, I think songwriting is just sort of a matter of keeping your ears open and 
So little things drift into my songs, you know, like from what people say or what mm. line from a poem or another line or a phrase from a song. Sometimes I do it and someone says, oh, that's that. And I go, oh, that's... <laughs> I didn't you, even yeah. know it happened. <laughs> yeah, well, I was saying usually, usually it's not conscious and it's after... You know, sometimes you, you you write something and then you look back. It's, it's more when you look back on a song and think, oh, I can see where that where that sort of maybe that sort of feeling for that melody came from so um you sort of see it it's not conscious at the time i mean you know the, the first three notes of before too long um uh you know are from an irish folk song called carrick fergus and i didn't realize that too much later you know but mm. it's not even if it, even if it was a steal that's out of copyright so i'm safe but i mean it's not it's <laughs> It's, if it had been by a, uh, a contemporary songwriter, I still would have been fine because it's, it's just a little, you know, it's just a bit. You never know, though, because look what happened to men at work and stuff. That was horrendous. Yeah, I think you've got to be careful. And I, I sometimes sometimes check. Uh, I'll send stuff to my, my publisher or my lawyer and say, I think this might be a bit close to something else. Um, mm. Most of the time it's just, it's, it's really, it's too uh, too small to be a problem or it's a, a, a phrase or I tend to I do tend to um, steal from the old stuff anyway so yeah that's um, definitely safe <laughs> we, we know that's just my my inclination anyway but um, yeah with the, even doing the, the the Christmas song this year which is written not written by me it's written by uh, friends of mine Chris and Wes Harrington and their original version, which um, has a bass line that's very, very close to um, Taxman. You, yes. can still, you can still hear it in the song. Yeah. But we, uh, and we recorded it with their bass line, that bass line, at first. And then I thought, hmm. And um, I sent it to uh, our lawyer and said, what do you think? He said, the Beatles are very litigious. <laughs> maybe, maybe you want to change that baseline. <laughs> the remnants are still there, but it, I don't know. I, yeah. I always feel like if it is really close, it, it should be seen as an homage, not as a threat, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you've got to be careful when you say, oh, this is just an homage. You know, if, you, if you're really taking too much of the, of the other person's song, then, it, you know, you can't, you can't sort of fudge your way out of it by saying, oh, this is just an homage, you know, if, um, I mean, be I wrote, nice if you could. Yeah, I oh, know. I think I think you got to sh- share it. You know, come to make a deal. Sh- share the songwriting. I've done yeah, that in the past. Exactly. Yeah. Um, when I te- I texted Dan this week and uh, told him that I was going to be talking to you, and he said oh, you should definitely mention eighties hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to mention eighties hip hop, and um, I'd love to ask you what what your love of 80s hip-hop was about and what your, you know, what are your favourite records? I mean, I love hip-hop generally. Probably the 80s and early 90s hip-hop stays with me because it was, you know, when I, you know, when I was sort of first really fell in love with it, you know, from, you know, going back to Grandmaster Flash and then, you know, Snoop Dogg and uh, a lot of the stuff, Dr Dre, and then, mm. you know, I like uh, Gangstar, um, Tribe Called Quest, being a Bonita yeah. Apple Bomb and all, all that. Um, 
So yeah, that was just sort of a, a time in my life, and uh, you know, we, we we spent spent a bit of time over in the states, and um, uh, when a lot of those records were coming out, so it was, you know, I've always you know sort of liked hip hop. Uh, it's it's a great great form of music. It's there's a lot of storytelling and a lot of hip hop, a lot of really great rhyming and rhythm, um, mm. and you're all you know very flexible supple rhyming with internal rhymes and yeah so um it's always it's sort of always been a, an influence I, don't, I mean to me it's an influence but it doesn't really come out in my music yeah it, i was like know, i was gonna ask where are your drum machines <laughs> <laughs> when we recorded how to make gravy you know we were sort of hip-hop was really at the back of that song for us it'd be just the the way we uh pete and steve hadley played the bass and drums and, and sort of the way I was sort of phrasing it, you know, that was sort of a hip-hop thing for me that we were sort of coming from that. You look like you, you spend a lot of time um, thinking about the rhythm of your phrasing and I wonder if that comes from hip-hop because some of your stuff obviously has a lot of spoken word or sort of spoken singy parts. Yeah, um, there's a German word for that, be... isn't there? Uh, <laughs> I it? think there might be. <laughs> uh, there is, no. The Germans, I thought, I thought you'd know it. They have words for everything. They do. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Okay, I have to look it up. There's a, it's, it's in the classical, certain classical um, thing. I think you know that, or they used to do it in the in those cabaret years, the, the cabaret yeah, right. years, sing speaking. Yeah, I'm, I, am, I am a sing speaker. I half sing, half talk a lot of my yeah, words. and that's, I imagine some of that must come from your love of hip hop. Yeah, that's probably sort of how, how it comes through in that sort of talk, talk, and just get the rhythm right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I was wondering. There's a. I think there's a bit in your book where you say that um, you you played a, a DX7 on one of your one of your songs, <laughs> and that no, nobody nobody left the eighties unscathed. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's particularly uh, every time I listen to a song called um, "Don't Stand So Close to the Window" and we, we're playing yeah. it's a DX7 violin. Like, what the <laughs> what the hell are we thinking? There's, we could have gone and got a violin player. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I mean, everyone needs a, D, a DX7 line on our record at some point. I reckon. <laughs> yeah, it's there forever. <laughs> Um, well, our time is is so is going so quickly. Um, I really would love to ask you my final question, which is the question that I ask everyone: What is your strangest show experience? Uh, I actually got probably my worst one when it's back in the DX7 days. Does it involve a DX7? <laughs> well, the, until we were playing, Pedro would have been playing one at the time when um, it was eighty five. It was post had come out, and I just but I just got the band together, so the Colour Girls, that then became the Messengers. So that was, um, you know, Michael Barclay on drums, John Schofield on bass, um, Peter Bull or Pedro on, on keyboards, and Steve Connolly on guitar. And uh, so we were starting to do gigs as a band, but we hadn't we hadn't made. I think we'd made Gossip, but we hadn't put it out yet, and. Uh, we were booked to play at Mittagong RSL. It was the start of a tour. And uh, John, John Schofield had a mate who had a PA. So we thought, you know, it was, he came at a good rate. <laughs> and so we 
we we drove to the gig with uh, the mates PA and it took a long time to set up and wasn't going very well and then it was running late sound check ran late and then um, he was trying to get things together but nothing was working or there was oh, horrible no. pops and squeals we tried to do a sound check and uh, and uh, you know the monitors just sounded awful um, we were running really late we ended up running late for the, the actually actual show this is in the days when the the support act was disco on the worksheet it would say you know <laughs> support act disco um, so <laughs> what does that we, mean was it just a the DJ? guy playing dj yeah 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 um, so the, you know the dj was pumping out the songs and there weren't many people there to start with this it was a place that, that fit about 600 there was around 50 mm-hmm. that is the dj was starting to make you know snide remarks about, yeah, the band might be coming on soon, uh, sometime before Christmas, and now here's, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, um, what's that Doors song, the road, the road one? He are hands on the wheel and your eyes upon the road. I remember he was playing that. Um, oh, no. And then uh, we finally came on. We sounded like shit. We were sort of demoralised. Everybody was way at the back of the room oh. uh, against the bar, and we were just playing to, to no one. There was... PA was squealing. It was horrible. <laughs> and then oh, no. we started soldiering on through. And then about halfway through, this, uh, this young woman detaches herself from the, 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 the drinkers at the bar and walks all the way up to the front and stands in front of Steve Connolly. And she's sort of beckoning to him in the middle. It, still playing the song. So he, he, we wait till we, he, we finish the song and think, oh, at least someone likes it. They want to maybe say, you know, ask us. She says... I just, I'm leaving now. I just wanted to say, say before I left, you're the worst band I've ever heard. <laughs> why did she have? Why did she feel the need? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, that was me to go in RSL, 1985. I'd say, yeah. <laughs> That's wow. Did you feel demoralised after the show, or did you feel like it was funny? Oh, no, awful, awful, oh. awful. Yeah. How yeah. many years did it take to think that was funny? Um, maybe a year or two. Not yeah. too long. <laughs> good. <laughs> Not too That's long. That's always a thing. It's always a good story in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Paul, thank you so much for making time to do this. It was so lovely to see you and to talk to you. You too, you too. Really great. I am looking forward to seeing you at Christmas. Mm-hmm.